0: The Collects of Thomas Cranmer um, by Fred Barbie and Paul Zoll, who used to be the dean here. Barbie was on uh, staff as a canon, I believe. Um, uh, As it's Reformation Sunday, I figured not only is this a good book to bring in for the collect, I'm always bringing in a collect to open us in prayer, but the Reformation is all about Scripture uh, and its sort of initiation. It was a sort of... Uh, going back, a recovery to the Bible, which had been sort of hidden from, from the masses, uh, restricted to the, um, sort of priestly class to, 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 to sort of be able to read it in Latin. A lot of people didn't speak Latin. So at the heart of uh, Reformation was a recovery of scripture in vernacular languages. In the English Reformation, that meant English. And so this collect really speaks to that. So let us pray. Blessed Lord, which hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And you can may keep that for your own edification if you want to read it and the titles there if you're interested. And the book is a great devotional, more on a weekly basis if you're interested. Well today uh we continue the Inquirer's class. If you haven't been coming, that's fine. <clears throat> this is designed so you can come as a one off. If you have been coming, um I'm so glad that you're back with us today. Uh, I figured with the Inquirer series this fall, uh, as we uh, think about Scripture, it would be great to have Mark Gillette come in, who is a biblical studies uh, professor, scholar, Ph.D. uh, at uh, Beeson Divinity School, to talk to us about Scripture. And thinking about Scripture, I thought, what's the most pressing question in 2016, which is, how can we look at it as an authoritative document? Why would anybody believe what's written in scripture, Uh, it's actually a countercultural thing to do in the West, in the United States, uh, even in a place like Alabama nowadays, to believe that the Bible is something worth looking to uh, for the words of life, really. And so without further ado, Mark, would you come up and give us a good word, and I'll hand off the recording device to you. Okay. And y'all, while Mark's coming up... Anybody that didn't
1: get my um, uh, emailed postcard, it's the Inquirer's lunch in that, that the dean spoke about. The invitation is right up there on the table. You're invited, so grab one of those. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> I'll
0: there are a couple chairs up here in the room, Oh, there are? I'll sit on the front. Yeah. Nobody else yeah. wants
1: to sit on the front. There's um, room in between no. Stewart and... Um. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, well, this is kind of cozy. Uh, I don't think I've ever taught in here before, um, but I'm glad to see you all. Uh, my name is Mark, and this is... We'll, we'll, um I'm losing this. I know we're doing a little thing at the end. Do you want me to leave time for some Q&A as well? We haven't done a lot of Oh, we haven't? We're sort of light and fast. But if you want to leave a few minutes... Well, we'll just see. That, I, call, we'll an yeah, and when do you want... I know, I was going to say, I've got a bad track record on this. Um, oh, sorry, Ten fifteen. 15 no, no Q&A. Uh, <laughs> let's just be honest. No, we'll see. We'll see. Um, all right, L- let me, let me uh, begin prayer. Lord, do help us this morning as we... A dive into this subject matter that you'll give us a sense of understanding and that you open our hearts and our minds to believe what is an article of our faith. And if you engender that belief in our hearts, we'll be quick to give you the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I should have known, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, of course, today's Reformation Sunday. I don't know if you plan to do it. Oh, it's just a wonderful. Um, uh, so, so really, you know, as far as talking about the sufficiency of the Bible... Uh, its authority, its role in our lives, I can almost just say, listen to our sermon from this morning again. That was a good word that we heard. Um, I I have a lot that I brought to kind of just throw against the wall and we'll see where where we go. Now, um I wanted to start with a story from Martin Luther. Again, kind of wasn't planning on this. Um, Martin Luther tells a story about a man who died and then he woke up before a heavenly tribunal. And when he was condemned for his refusal to accept God's salvation, the man objected. He said at the heavenly tribunal, I I never heard any word from God. No one ever gave me a chance to believe. And then God replied, "I, I spoke to you every Sunday morning. And then the man responded, well, all I ever heard were the ramblings of an ignorant preacher just babbling away. To which God replied, precisely, it was I speaking to you in human form the eternal words of life. Uh, That's a kind of haunting statement, but I think it taps into a little bit about our dynamic of understanding from a sort of Christian and theological standpoint what the Bible is and how the Bible relates in a particular chain of being. I think this is really important, because we have to frame our conversation about the Bible around certain theological instincts. Namely, and I think this is first out of the gate, number one, um, in the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, let me say that, that, that's a jolt of a verse, right? In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1. John's Intentionally borrowing there from the language of the book of Genesis. How does the book of Genesis begin? How we get right out of the gate in our Bibles, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here, John, the apostle, is making a statement about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, sometimes we need to let the weight of that sit on us. I was sitting in a class, a seminary class years ago when I was a student, and I remember one of my professors saying, you do realize that our understanding of Jesus as fully God and fully man, that's crazy by the way, but we believe that stuff, now fully God, fully man, that you could have been walking down the road in the first century world of Palestine eating a falafel in a gyro roll, I don't know if they did that back then, and passed, uh, you know, right by Jesus of Nazareth, and not even known who he was. I mean, there's no glow. He wasn't sort of hovering off the ground. You know, he took naps. He ate. He drank. He got onto boats. And I mean, so Jesus was um, fully man. And yet here John, in this first verse in chapter one, is saying that that man who kicked up dust on that in that first century world is um, co-equal with the one who created the world. So we can't even talk about creation and the world and being itself without talking about Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things are through Him. So when we're talking about the Bible as the Word of God, we need to first emphasize that Jesus of Nazareth is the Word of God. Um, He is the eternal Logos. He's the eternal Word. He is the very... Instrument by which God spoke, and then by His Spirit brought this whole world into existence, even words. I mean, this kind of gets, this ties into this. Even our ability to put nouns with a verb and a couple of modifiers here, or there, and all of a sudden we're doing human speech with one another. I mean, even that ability to use human language has as an antecedent commitment, the fact that God is the creator of the world around us. So when we're talking about the Bible, our first stop in that discussion is, number one, Jesus is the very word of God. Jesus is the communication of God to us so that we would know who he is. And the Bible finds its authority because of its relationship to Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible finds its authority as the Word of God because of its relationship to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, a fully man. So you go, the Word of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Scriptures that witness faithfully to Him, and then you move all the way down to, I shouldn't say all the way down, but next, to preaching. And this is why, I don't know if you get this sense around uh, Advent, but we're a church that takes preaching really seriously, um, a lot of thought goes into preaching around here. Um, and what's the emphasis here? What's the instinct that's sort of driving our very reformational evangelical congregation? It's because preaching, as it submits to the authority of the Word of God, which witnesses faithfully to Jesus, when you preach faithfully in accord with His Word, now hold on to your seatbelts here, um, Jesus of Nazareth becomes present to you. In other words, the one that walked around so long ago and then died and rose again and now is ascended to the Father and he sits there in a bodily form waiting to come and redeem us again. That self-same Jesus of Nazareth is made present to you by the power of the Spirit and the faithfulness of the preached word. I'm not sure we think about Jesus so much that way, but there's a verse in in Hebrews that says when we gather together as a congregation to worship and we join our songs together in praise, that Jesus, our older brother, is actually in our midst singing right along with us. That's incredible, right? Now, I don't know if you thought about it this morning. I'll to, I didn't either till just now, to be honest with you. But, um, I mean, there we were, you know, about 45 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, singing our praises to God. And there's Jesus present with us, singing with his brothers and sisters to the Father and by the Spirit. So this whole Trinitarian notion about God's presence and his being in our midst, when the Bible is preached faithfully, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is manifest and present in our midst. I don't know what drives you to come to church week in and week out, but that's certainly part of the narrative that drives me. I know that when I'm coming to church, I'm hungry for something. And what is it that I'm hungry for? Well, I'm really hungry for Jesus. And it's the Bible preached faithfully that brings Jesus present to us in palpable and real ways by the by the power of the Spirit. So that's a kind of a... I don't know... a 30,000-foot view on the relationship of the Bible within God's own triune life. And this, now I want to kind of bring it down and just say, you know, we are talking about the Bible, all right? Now, I don't know if you've read it lately or looked into it lately, but, you know, it's a, there's some strange soup in the Bible. Um, I have some things written here. Maybe this will hit home, right? So we're talking about... um Creation wilderness wanderings burning bushes uh, swords being lost in the fat of an obese brood of a man that's an awesome story. <laughs> uh, harem warfare, tough stuff, giants and slingshots, poetry and wise aphorisms, the despair of a preacher named Kohelet or Ecclesiastes the thunder of a prophet, in the narrative movements of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their uniqueness and in the way in which they coalesce, the theologically pastoral letters of Paul, in the history of the apostles, and the anonymous letter to the Hebrews, and the last will and testament of the apostle Peter, and that really bizarre book that we call the book of Revelation. That book, this one right? that happens to have stamped on the front of it, Holy Bible. It's this very material and creaturely and human document that we confess to be the very means by which God sanctifies, sets apart these words and the strangeness of these words and these stories and communicates his very life-giving self to us. Now, I, I want to quote Carl uh, uh, Bart here. Because it's it's a quote that I, I really do I want to believe this is true. All right? He's, and he's not he's borrowing this from St. Augustine in the fifth century. Um Karl Barth said, The Bible, that's that book we we're just talking about with all the weirdness in there. The Bible, in its least assimilable and most difficult parts, has better and more important things to say than the best of our theological constructions. I want to say that one more time. Um, The Bible, in its least assimilable and most difficult parts, has better and more important things to say than the best of our theological constructions. Um, And I think I believe that um, 75% of the week, maybe. And that's a hard thing to swallow. In all of its strangeness and bizarreness, here Bart is saying, If I can use him as an example, you pick your favorite guy, Cranmer, Luther, um, St. Augustine, John Calvin, whoever the great luminaries are in the history of the church that I'm so grateful for, I think Karl Barth is one of them. Barth is saying the Bible has better things to say than anything that any of those people can say, including myself. That is an old-fashioned doctrine, and the one that we're talking about today, about the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible. The Bible is sufficient, and it's authoritative in its material form, the form that it comes to us. Why? Because God has told us that that's the way in which it is. I'm going to show that in a second. Now, before we press on, because of the gift of technology, I wanted to read to you, and and I think this is what drove Matt to title our lesson, the way in which he titled it, but I wanted to read to you um, article six of the Anglican Articles of Religion, the Thirty-nine Articles. I have this from online, but you can find it. Have you talked about the Articles of Religion in here? Is that something you've talked about every subject. All right, good. All right, so here we go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Um, so, Article six, entitled "Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation." It says, "Holy Scripture containeth." "...all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any person, that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation, and the name of the Holy Scripture we do understand those canonical books of the Old and the New Testaments, of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. And then uh, the articles of religion go on to identify the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, just as a kind of fun aside, that is the first confession or creedal statement in the history of the church that actually identified what books are in the Bible and not. I don't know if you knew that. I mean, it's kind of a stunning thing. Um, you know, because you have the Bible as the means by which the fourth century theologians are thinking about the Trinity. You know, Augustine's wrestling with Pelagianism on the basis of the Bible. Um, uh, Cyril of Alexandria's wrestling with who Jesus really is, fully God, fully man in the fifth century, all on the basis of the Bible. But the actual articulation of what books are in and out in a creedal or confessional form The Anglican articles of religion are really the first to do that um, in in, uh, the Western world. It's kind of fascinating to me. That's as an aside. All right. Um, But what do we see here? That the Bible is sufficient for all things that pertain to salvation. If we want to know what it means to understand who God is and what God's will is for our lives as as it pertains to our assurance of eternal security, our standing before Him, the Reformation tradition, of which the Anglican tradition is a, an ingredient part, says we do so on the basis and on the authority of the Holy Scriptures themselves, Old and New Testament. Old Testament, I've got a special place in my heart for the Old Testament. I, I often I teach it for less how I pay the mortgage. Um, but I, I often tell people I think the New Testament's a wonderful appendix. I'm glad it made the cut. Um, but I don't really feel that way. I mean, it's it's old and New Testaments, both around a single subject matter that witness to us about the character of our God, God's will and ways in the world, and that they're sufficient. And I want to talk about two scriptures to maybe sort of drive this home. One of them is a narrative from Jesus, and the other one is the ending of the Gospel of John. I want to start with John, and then I'll go uh, to the story about Jesus, which is one of my favorites in the Bible. Um, This is how John ends his Gospel. And Jesus did many other things, so much so that they could be written to the heavens and back. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. That's a Bible verse that I've known since I was a little boy growing up in the church. How many of you have heard that that verse before? I mean, if we we start writing down the things that Jesus did, we could go all the way to the moon and back. He did so many incredible things. And I always read that statement and understood the ending of John's gospel as a superlative. In other words, this was a statement of the overwhelming works of Jesus and how we could just keep on writing ad infinitum and never stop. I don't think that's the case anymore. Of course, I believe that's true. But I don't think that's what John is trying to tell us at the end of his gospel. I think John is actually making a statement of negation. In other words, I think the reading goes something like this. Yes. Jesus did all other kinds of things. So much so that we could keep on writing about it. Or other people will try to write about it. I mean, how many of you watch the History Channel or CNN or the Discovery Channel during um, Easter or Lent season? All of a sudden, all these different Gospels that are found, right? The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas, all these other sort of forms of Christianity. It's as if John's Gospel anticipates that. Many other things could be written. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a claim that sets, and this is my opinion here, but I feel pretty strongly about it. It's my opinion that John, the ending of John is not just the ending of John, but it's the ending of the fourfold gospel collection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that here you have this last phrase that's saying, This collection... That's moving together. And it moved together very early in the life of the church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a collection of Gospels. Four Gospels around a single Gospel. And here the ending of John is saying, These are sufficient. These are sufficient for what? For the knowledge of who Jesus really is. Both was and is. And all things that pertain to life and salvation. Article 6 the Anglican articles of religion that talk about the sufficiency of the Bible is in effect a kind of paraphrase, I think, of the ending of the Gospel of John and John's claim about these particular Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are written that ye might believe and they're sufficient. They're enough. They're more than enough. They are a treasure trove, a deep welled mine for you to continue to plumb into for the rest of your lives, in my opinion, for all of eternity. I mean, I do believe Bible study will be a part of our eternal existence. Right? All, for all of eternity, we will be studying the scriptures and mining them to know the depths and the beauty and the complexity of who God is as re- He's revealed Himself to us in His Son. All right? They're sufficient. They're enough for what we need. Second story. If you have had Bibles, you can turn to this one. Matt, keep me honest on time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> What, what bells?
0: Our bells.
1: Oh, those bells. I've never heard bells before when I teach. Okay. That's,
0: You've never been in the living room. Yes. Yeah, that's bad news
1: for you all. Um, so this is um, Luke chapter 24. Time here. Okay. 24. Verse 13. Um, okay, I, I'm not going to read. I'm going to paraphrase. Do you mind if I just paraphrase? And uh, it, it'll be um, close to form. All right. So here Jesus is on the far side of uh, his death and uh, his resurrection, and he's walking down a road, and there are two disciples that are there on the way to Emmaus. I've said this in other class contexts. If you've heard me say it, I apologize for repeating myself. But if if there's Friday night, movie night in heaven, and they get to replay like Bible scenes on the big screen... Um, like I'm gonna go. There's a lot that I'd like to see. Um, some would be really rated R. I don't know if we can take our children or not. But I'd like to see. I'd like to see this scene right here because it's it's just riddled with irony and humor. This is. I don't know if we laugh a lot at the Bible, but we're meant to laugh here. I think. If you ever read the book of Jonah and don't sort of laugh through that, then you know, we're supposed to laugh at Jonah too, and then at the end of the book you realize the joke's on you, the reader. But that, that's another another lesson. Um, but here Jesus comes upon these two disciples. They don't recognize him. And so he looks at them and he says, um, Why so forlorn? I mean, what's, what's wrong with everybody around here? Everybody seems a little bit down in the dumps. And they say to Jesus, this is the funny part, are you the only one in all of Israel that doesn't know what's happened over these past few days? And and Jesus plays dumb. He plays along with them. Well, what what things happened? Well, they've killed Jesus of Nazareth, and these are some of the saddest words in the Gospels. They've killed Jesus of Nazareth, but we thought he was our Messiah. You know, Messiahs don't end up on crosses. Spartacus ends up on a cross, not, not the Messiah. Um, and so all of our hopes have been dashed. And then Jesus rebukes them. He says, you're slow to believe. And then he ends up going back with them to their to their house. And um, what does he do? On the basis of Moses and the prophets, Jesus explains all things concerning himself. And then he breaks the bread and he's gone. Now, I would love to talk about that, but that's the coalescing of word and sacrament right here in Luke 24, but we'll leave that to the side. Jesus goes out of their midst, and then he comes back at the end of Luke 24, and now he's with the disciples again in the upper room. And what does Jesus do in the upper room? He speaks to them about himself on the basis of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or we might just say the writings. In other words, Jesus gives an account of himself on the basis of the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures, of the Bible. Isn't that something? Think about this. Jesus was actually involved organically in the actual composition of the Old Testament. He was involved in its inspiration as a very member of the eternal triune Godhead. And yet here Jesus is, who in a very real sense is the author of the Old Testament, appealing to the Old Testament to provide warrant and authority for who he is in his person and his work. Jesus is modeling something for us about what it is to be a follower of him. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a lifelong investigator and learner and studier and listen to the authority of the Bible as it shapes and provides for us a grammar, the ABCs for how we talk about um, who Jesus is. Why is the Bible authoritative? Because Jesus models for us something about its authority, because of who it witnesses to—that is, Him and His person and His work. I'll say one more thing, and then maybe we can take just take two or three questions. One more thing: I also believe that the Bible itself, as an authoritative document, anticipates certain kinds of readers. Now, this is where we move now away from what the Bible is. What is the Bible? The Bible is the authoritative Word of God by which God communicates His very self to us in the life of the church. That's why we listen so attentively to it. But the other question we want to ask is, what about you as a reader? What about me as a reader of the Bible? What kind of readers does the Bible anticipate? Or another way of putting this is, why do we even have the Bible? Why has it been preserved within the tradition? I was rummaging through some T.S. Eliot um, uh, essays that he wrote, and he wrote an, Elliot, a, a, an, Elliot, an essay in 1934 on religion and literature, and he's got a wonderful phrase here he says, I know that people talk about the Bible as literature, they find it fascinating in its literary form, he said, but I want to tell you, in effect, the reason why the Bible is so powerful and the bestseller of all time. Eliot the, the, didn't talk this way, by the way. Um, why? Now, because people believe that it's a divine word. I mean, the reason why people flock to buy it or have read it more than any other book in the history of the Western world is not because of its literary quality. hope you're okay with me saying that. It's not because you pick up Samuel and you go, oh my goodness, Samuel is so much better than Mark Twain. <laughs> or, you, or you go through Mar- or Matthew's gospel you go, Matthew? I mean, Matthew, compare Matthew to Homer's Iliad. It's so much better than the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's not that at all. It's a certain claim about the character of these words as being used by God to communicate himself to us. That's why we flock to it. And the Bible, I think, because of that, anticipates certain kinds of readers. Thomas Cramer wrote a set of homilies. And these homilies sort of traveled throughout uh, the English church, and they were read on Sunday mornings because this is a fascinating fact of you know church history. But you could be ordained as a priest in the Church of England, but not necessarily licensed to preach. So you could administer the sacrament, but they weren't going to let you, you know, you're, you couldn't preach your way out of a bag. Or I, I don't know what it was, but you, not everybody preached. So they had homilies that would travel and they would be uh, said publicly. One homily that Cramer that wrote was on reading Holy Scripture. You have to remember, people were fearful about this. There's a certain kind of... Um, there's a certain kind of anxiety that was attached to now their ability to go and read the, the Bible, which was always in the providence and the authority of the clergy. Now the laity are being encouraged, go and read. Right. And this is what Cranmer says. Cranmer says, if you're afraid of getting it wrong. I mean, that's, this is a great question. I, the, the humility of that. I don't want to read the Bible. How do I even know if what I'm reading, if I'm reading it rightly or not? Kramer says, if you're afraid that you're going to read the Bible wrongly, go with this attitude in mind. These are, again, I think, the readers that the Bible anticipates. Go with this attitude in mind. What? That I will come low. That I will stoop myself low in humility as I come to read these words. And that I will come with a spirit of submission. This comes back to the sufficiency of the Bible. That I will come with a spirit of submission to say that what is claimed there." I will yield in authority to that particular word. I will come with that mind and that heart ready to yield and to obey. Um, Cranmer is borrowing straight from St. Augustine in the 5th century, who said that the Bible anticipates readers who fear him, who have piety. What kind of piety? The kind of piety that says, what's said there is more important and better than my own instincts. And and I'm going to allow my instincts and my view of the world, and my view of him, and my view of my neighbor, to be shaped by the authority of these words. That's the kind of person that the Bible anticipates. And isn't that a fact? I, mean, I think if someone were to come to me on a normal sort of sidewalk conversation and say, I want to be a better reader of the Bible. I want to make sure that I don't get it wrong. You know, I think you know the, the, the lead with that would be, well, you know, come take a class at Beeson. Uh, you know, sit in, which I, I hope you do, but, you know, come take class of Beeson or, or make sure you are at every Bible study possible or, or read these three books. And I think all of that's important. I'm not dismissing any of that. But it's interesting that the tradition from Cranmer, even all the way back to St. Augustine, is that's not the lead in that conversation. The lead is the person that reads the Bible well is a certain kind of reader that goes toward the scriptures in humility and says, even when I don't understand, I'm going to yield myself to this and all of its complexity, and let it shape and frame my view of God uh, and my my view of the world. All right. Well, what time is it? Okay, let's talk. We can. We we got we have no no bells yet. What do you want to ask about? What What are you frustrated about? Yes. I want to
0: ask what version of the Bible or what translation do you recommend.
1: That's good. What else can I? Ask? You can ask it too. Okay. Great. Um, you know, this is not going to be a very satisfactory answer for you. I mean, my, you know, my um, my initial reaction to that is whatever tra- English translation is nearest to you that you will read, I would say go for it. Um, so that that's a kind of, you know, that's maybe not a very helpful one, but um, so many of our English translations are very good. Um, and so many of them really are based on the King James tradition. You know, the King James version kind of bred the Revised Standard Version. I have a lot of time for the RSV. Um, I think our Bible around here, and the Bible that we primarily use at Beeson, is the English Standard Version. That's the one that I had this morning. Um, I really like the New International Version as well. It tends to be a little bit more—this is not the right way to say it—but it's it's a better read than a lot of the other translations because it goes for smoothness. In its literary form, but I really like the NIV. You know, I, I grew up in a world um, that identified the NIV as the as the new and accurate version. Um, you know, I don't, I don't I don't quite view it that way. I like the NIV, so I you know I don't have a big dog in the fight. But if you're looking for a version, I think the NIV or the ESV are, are outstanding, both of them. Well, you'll be interested to know I asked that same question to Alan Ross. Well, he's got an answer. Well, the same one you did. The same one you gave. Oh really? Oh okay. There you go. Anything else? Yes, sir. I would be interested just to hear your starter's tips on how do you interact with, as someone who's coming to the Bible to submit to it, with people who are coming to the Bible who are not having that
0: perspective. Maybe that's someone who, um, you know, I don't know, like, yeah. Maybe like a barterman kind of person, or yeah. like kind of someone from that perspective. Yeah. How do you like? How do you just begin that conversation?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the the word conversation is the right word to have in that. It has to be a conversation. It can't. And again, this is a very big,
0: yeah,
1: I know. big can of worms. But it's a good can of worms so at least crack open a little bit. Um, you know, we, that any appeal to intellectual neutrality. And I was like, let's just set our commitments to the side. And let's come to this and let's just look at the facts. I, I, I inherently do not believe in that as a project. I don't think, number one, it can exist, even if we try our best. And number two, for a Christian, I think that borders on, this is going to sound heavy-handed, but I think that borders on a kind of intellectual idolatry. And I it's like, I'm going to set my whole God worldview stuff to the side, and then I'm just going to kind of beat you at your own game. I, I say that's that's using using Caesar's sword to do Jesus' work, right? Um, so I do recognize that, that at the end of the day, in these kinds of conversations that yeah, I call them coffee shop conversations, they just seem to happen to me in co- coffee shops, um, where or or in the top floor of a coffee shop um, um, that you know that we try to listen, but also not apologize for allowing belief um, to have its own kind of intellectual warrant. You know, Anselm Canterbury, a very important figure in the medieval church, said that faith precedes understanding. I, I, I put a lot of stock into that as a Christian view, as an intellectually Christian view. Um, why? Because it's faith that helps me understand, not, and I would, put, I would say John Locke would be an exhibit of this, not I believe I, I understand in order that I might believe. I think that narrative is the narrative of modernity, and I'm not sure it's worked out all that well.
0: Mark, if someone's inspired today by what you've said, where should they start?
1: Um, the Bible. You know, I, I and that's a good question. You know, because I you know I, I um. I'm involved in a project right now with somebody. We're thinking through like an introduction to the Old Testament, and one of the things I thought as I was, as I was writing the introduction to that is, now how many of us, and me as well, you know, good intentions. Um, um, we have good intentions in our home all the time that never quite come through, or we kind of continually repent of them. Um, but you know, I'm going to read the Bible this year, and like, okay, so I get through Genesis, and um, that was interesting. Got through Exodus, even all the weird stuff with the tabernacle, but got through that. But then you know, but Leviticus. You know, see ya. You know, I'm done. Um, you know, so some sort of strategy. I, I actually and um, have found, and again, I am not consistent on this by any means. So I don't want to sort of project some kind of piety that doesn't exist for me. Um, but I will at times uh, make use of the daily office. And I actually think it's quite good because what you're getting in the daily office, and that's all listed in the back of your um, prayer books or you can get a copy of it online. Um, there's even an app for it. I think, where you can have the daily office come up and it gives you a, it gives you Psalms for the day, it gives you an Old Testament reading, it gives you a Gospel reading, and it gives you an Epistle reading. Um, and it tends to follow those, the technical term is Lectio Continua. Are, it follows the whole book all the way through, so you're reading whole books, you're reading the Psalms regularly. It's hard to beat that, actually. I think that's a great way to get in, um, and, Really, it's only like 10 to 15 minutes of your time at the most. You can really kind of you know, work through those. That's a good way of doing it. Um,
0: you got the, the prayer. Well, we can end on that note. I'll say a couple things. But yeah. The, um, let's stay there, Mark. Oh, okay. The, the, the handout that I gave uh, Fred Barbie and Paul's all mentioned about Cranmer's uh, bringing back this yearly reading yeah. of the Bible, and that's in the daily office. You can look that up online or to the back of the prayer book, as Mark says, um um, what do I want to say, uh, Sandy? Do you have any housekeeping for us? Um, just again, the the luncheon that's coming up, and if 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 I if you don't get my weekly emails, that means I don't
1: have you down, so I can't invite you to things. So I'd love to to have that information. Is that clipboard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's right, right there.
0: there. See her if you want to be on the list. We have one more session, I think, uh, yes. in in this inquiry series. I'm teaching next week the history of the Advent, our church. Mm-hmm it's the last time i'm going to do that um i think it's interesting i've done it for almost two years now when we do the inquiries class in the spring i think it's really important that we do a session on the sacraments uh communion and baptism so i'm taking the history of the advent out to do sacraments which i think is more important frankly uh, if you want to know the history of the Advent, come next week. It's your last time to hear me at least <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> or buy, uh, what's his name? John Harper's uh, Coffee Table book. It's a beautiful book and it has a lot of the history of that, that I'll be talking about more thoroughly exposited. Um, and then on the 13th, as Sandy said, uh, Andrew's going to be talking to us at that brunch at 1230 in the refectory about the vision of the Advent. In the future, I might tack on history to that brunch there a little bit. So it could be history and vision. Um, but thanks so much. Yeah. Do you want You have one book that you want to recommend to us? I've been asking a oh. teacher to bring a book in. I,
1: I don't really know. I wrestled with that. Um, the, I have two books here if you want to look at them before I leave. Um, the Word of God for the People of God by Todd Billings is actually kind of helpful. This is a book you can kind of fiddle in. And then a book by John Webster called Holy Scripture: A Dogmatic Sketch. It's 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 not. He didn't write it very well. I apologize to you in advance. But as far as the content goes, it's about as good as it gets, I think, from trying to wrestle through these matters. So say those titles again. Um, uh, Todd Billings, The Word of God for the People of God, and then John Webster's Holy Scripture: A Dogmatic Sketch. I make my students at Beeson read this one, um, and they kind of curse through it. Uh, but
0: you can always buy a Bible too, right? and a Bible. Yeah, a
1: Bible's great. Do
0: you want to close us in a?
1: Prayer? Sure, sure, sure. Lord, well, we are grateful that you've given us your Word, and you've not left us to try to figure you out by turning inward on ourselves or just thinking about you with our minds. You've given us your Word to shape and guide the ways in which we think about you and ourselves, and I pray that you'll bless these dear friends here for those who are seeking and not really sure about this whole Christianity thing, I pray, God, that by Your gracious Spirit, You draw them to You in life-giving hope and the hope of the Gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, Mark. For... Yeah, thank you. We...